0: When you talk, I'm going to listen to you in such a way that I'm going to open myself to feel you. And I'm going to open myself to say, what is it that's important to you? Not picking out from what you say, the one thing that I think he's wrong about that. Now I'm going to argue and bring all my ammunition against it. No, we're listening with our whole beings, with the understanding we're all in community together, and we want to stay in community together.
1: Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. My guest this episode is Mushim Makeda. Mushim is a socially engaged Buddhist teacher and community activist who teaches at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, California. She's also the guiding teacher of an award-winning program called Practice in Transformative Action, which provides secular mindfulness training for social justice activists. In our conversation, we cover a number of topics related to Mashim's work, including her teaching about radical inclusivity and disability justice, the relationship between ultimate and relative reality in the context of all that's opening up right now around racial justice, and also working in community around issues of othering and belonging. I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. So without further delay, here is Mushim Makeda. Well, I'm here with Mushim Makeda. Mushim, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast.
0: Pleased to be here. Thank you, David.
1: I've heard about you for a couple of years, and I know you teach not far away from me. I'm here in the Bay Area, and you teach in Oakland, I believe, at the East Bay Meditation Center. And I'm wondering if we could just start by having you talk a little bit about the center. I think EBMC for short, do you sometimes refer to it that way?
0: We do. And that's for East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland, California. So David, we are in our 14th year now that we've had doors open to a, a physical facility during the pandemic, of course, we're all online for safety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're a diversity and social justice-centered urban meditation center, teaching mostly mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm.
1: And how's it going in this particular moment? It's one of the reasons that I thought it would be powerful to talk about really the leadership of EBMC over the years of working with Meditation, racial justice, and just doing a lot of different work. So I'm how are you doing inside of this moment? How's teaching going? Even the shift to online. I'm curious, um, what you're seeing right now.
0: We're doing well. And you'll hear some hesitation because it's been a lot of work. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I can imagine.
0: (laughs) And the staff recently took a seven-day, what we call the collective rest off. I teach at East Bay Meditation Center, and I'm also part-time on staff as community director. And we recently took a seven-day collective rest Mm -hmm. where staff unplugged. We all have other part-time jobs, so it's not like we stopped working. We did have more time to spend with our families, gardening, sitting in the sun, reading, and catching up with friends on phone calls. It was really, really refreshing, and that helped with our Mm -hmm. sustainability. So a big Mm -hmm. part, as I'm sure that you and the listeners know, of the current work in social justice leadership is to model an anti-burnout, to try to embody an anti-burnout model. This is very difficult because there is so much urgency in the current situation of climate crisis, of pandemic, of political turmoil, of the the Black Lives Matter and movement for Black Lives increase in, in momentum, which is a very good thing. And there's just so much going on uh, right now that modeling sustainability is not easy, and we are trying to do it as an organization. So our teachers have all switched online. For myself as a teacher, it wasn't that much of a stress of a stretch because I'd already been doing a lot of work on Zoom previous to that in teaching Mm -hmm. for other organizations and in some of the facilitation and diversity, equity and inclusion consulting work that I do. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's always new things to learn. There's a tech to deal with. And because at East Bay Meditation Center, our mission also includes a value of radical inclusivity. We're always trying to stretch to Go into our discomfort and stretch zone, kind of like in in yoga. You don't want to hurt yourself. Just a good stretch into areas where we could be even more inclusive. So for instance, in some of the Buddhist curriculum I taught this past spring, there was the delightful, I was so full of joy, David, phenomenon Mm -hmm. of spontaneously a deaf participant and a team of two or three American Sign Language or ASL interpreters popped up in the Zoom room. Mm-hmm. Uh, the deaf participant had made this arrangement and suddenly we had ASL. Wow. So we really inc- increased our inclusivity that got the ball rolling. We developed a relationship to the deaf participant and the interpreters. And we discovered, David, that there is a deaf mindfulness Bay Area community on Facebook.
1: Wow. Yeah, th- This is something I've seen around EBMC over the years mm-hmm. is to really be in an ongoing conversation around access and how to do well by participants. And as you said, be on your edge. And then I'm really interested in what you said about the, what can seem like a, contradiction or a paradox between, say, social action uh, and more external focus on policy, on on protest, and then of contemplative practice, which can seem from the outside at least being more internal, maybe I wouldn't say passive, but uh, seems like a different energy or a different approach. And EBMC is a group of people who I think are in that conversation about how to integrate both social action and internal work around meditation. And I'm wondering if you could just talk, I I think this has been a part of your work for many decades now, either talk about personally how you think about this relationship between personal and social change or how you're working with it inside of EBMC.
0: That's a great question, David. And I would point to your own work and the field in which you're operating as being key to what we do at East Bay Meditation Center, what part of our goal is, and that is for all of our teaching, for all of our meditation and practice groups, for all of the activities that we do, our goal is for it to be trauma and disability justice informed,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: trauma and disability justice informed in order to create the widest access that we can so in your answer to your question about inner and outer work i personally don't think that's um that's a dualism or a binary that Mm -hmm. is one is exclusive of the other they're both interconnected and i would say one depends on the other or they go they go very much hand in hand without Mm -hmm what's called inner work, or being able to, I think many people would say, work towards healing our own traumas, and using mindfulness to look carefully at our own reactivity, our own issues, unless we're able to do that work on an ongoing basis. I personally don't think it's ever finished. However, sometimes we do need to begin it, and it is a journey, Without doing that work, then uh, what's called direct action in social justice work, marching, protests, uh, community organizing for physical presences and other kinds of petitions and so forth, they may look good on the outside. And they may be helpful, those, uh, those outer, what we're calling outer actions. However, mm-hmm. because if they're not based, in a strong foundation of inner work where people are aware of their intentions, where people are aware of their thoughts, their emotions, their body sensations, then the movements we're building will not be as solid, will not be as strong, they will not be as effective and strategic as they will be if we do the inner work. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I remember the first time I heard these two things being talked about together that was very new for me because I guess I had grew up with this thought about meditation or contemplative practice being a way to um, kind of remove myself from the world and then starting to be around um, teachers and practitioners who, as you're saying, they're really putting the two hand in hand, going together to say that one can actually support the other. And I love hearing you talk about what you said around burnout—that in the, the staff that you're needing to model this as well for the for the folks that you're teaching—could uh, you talk, Mishim, about um, disability justice? You mentioned that framework, and that might be new for people who are listening. What what do you mean by that, or, or where? How do you define that?
0: The term disability justice, in my understanding, according to the information that I've received through our community, David, is that disability justice is a movement that that is connected to, and also needs to be differentiated from say disability rights activism. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that disability justice as a term is rooted in the work of younger queer disabled persons. And that at that it is the group of um, I'm a baby boomer I'm 66 so mm-hmm.
1: a lot of people mm-hmm.
0: are younger than me however I would say people in maybe 30s 40s their 30s or 40s who are maybe 20s as well who are who self-identify as queer and who themselves are disabled and we know that the term disability covers a very wide range of mental and physical conditions and situations and uh, who have been instrumental that this group has been instrumental in bringing forth how going beyond rights uh, legally Mm -hmm. for people with disabilities, that disability justice looks deeply into how my, in my understanding, how we can create the communities that we want to live in, how we can mm-hmm. embody, sometimes this is called prefigurative act, activism, mm-hmm. or on a smaller scale, maybe even for an hour, creating a, a living model, never perfect, a living model sure. of, of a community, an action, an activity that shows a different way of being, in which people with disabilities are fully included, are recognized for their value, their brilliance, their unique talents, their perspectives. Because with disability, in some dimensions of diversity, although it's possible, it's less likely that we're going to switch during our own lifetime. So for instance, one dimension of disa- of diversity is uh, generation. I just hmm. self-identified as a baby boomer. I'm not, I mean I could lie, <laughs> but really <laughs> yes, I am a true. baby boomer. So I mean there's yeah. a certain that's a certain fixedness about that yeah, identity. Right. On the other yeah. hand, with the dimension of disability, anyone who now self-identifies as being non-disabled could at any moment um, right. have a stroke, something could happen, right. and there we go, disabled. Yeah.
1: Right, right. You know, the first time that I was in a, a space where there was, uh, people had been informed around disability justice, they did, uh, I think it was called an access needs check-in uh, in the early part of the training, and they said, is there, basically, is there anything that you would need... Here inside of the space that, um, that you'd like to make a request for. And it was it was actually really helpful to hear. Some people said, well, you know, I'm actually hard of hearing, so that if um, if you see me you know, raise my hand through this gesture, if you could speak up, that'd be helpful. And it was a way of, as you're saying, accounting for, we do the best we can. And it actually felt very parallel to some aspects of trauma-sensitive practice of saying, how can we best meet, meet the needs? of people who were teaching or that we're working with, and I have a question for you about this, where one of the things that came out of this conversation around disability justice was what do you do when there are multiple needs in a space, as there often is, and sometimes those needs end up being conflicting. So, for example, I'm in a space where someone says, hey, these fluorescent lights that are here, they give me headaches, and someone else says, well, if we turn the lights off, that's gonna make me feel unsafe. And so it ends up being this tricky moment of multiple needs happening in the space. And then how do we, as either mindfulness teachers or whatever role we're in, how do we navigate that well inside of a framework of disability justice? Do you have any thoughts about, like how have you worked with when there's multiple needs that might be conflicting or any situations that you've had um, experiences around that?
0: That is an excellent point. And we have extensive experience with that, David.
1: I bet because you do. Because the, situa- sure. yeah,
0: the situation is exactly as you're saying, and that is part of the tensions inherent in what we call radical inclusivity, or the quest to keep growing, keep expanding to become more and more accessible. Yeah. Any organization, any person any entity that wants to be radically inclusive will run into exactly the tension that you described so well. So the first thing is that comes to my mind is that my colleague, Larry Yang, who is a mindfulness teacher, Buddhist teacher, and one of the co-founders of East Bay Meditation Center, um, just very close Longtime friend of mine has written a wonderful Mm -hmm. book about being in spiritual community called Awakening uh, Together. Mm -hmm. And probably in it he says, and he has often said in his teaching, to the point that you're talking about of what happens when for access there are different needs and conflicting needs. Larry Yang has said can can we break together instead of breaking apart can wow. we break together, break together instead of breaking apart and he doesn't yeah. mean will we be broken together he means that can we come together and and speak to one another and express our uh, our needs in a way that isn't against the needs Mm, of mm -hmm. any other group. Mm -hmm. And then yes. And then through compassionate community dialogue to see where we can go when it's not so, so much in our society and say in a legal model is based on, on a competitive one side against another. It's basically chess. It's war, right? We want to be the victorious ones. And um, or in sports, we would like our team to win. However, if we look at a new kind of model which is how can how can we all win? Very much closer, I would think to Dr. Martin Luther King jr.'s concept of beloved community, which in my understanding does not leave anyone out, although Dr. King did use the term advisedly of aggressive, Nonviolent strategies. So Mm -hmm. he, he was not a wimp. He understood that very strong means of organizing and actions are needed to shift entrenched patterns of oppression in our society. So we're not talking about everyone being kind and gentle and talking in hushed voices and saying, oh yeah, now we understand one another and here's, here's our solution. I mean, we could get together in community and there will be passion. There will be fire. There is cultural conditioning around that. People in from different cultures express themselves in <clears throat> very different ways. And if when we learn to listen deeply to one another and listen for what is important to the other person putting our own needs aside for the moment not forever but but saying okay here's here's the thing when you talk i'm going to listen to you in such a way that i'm going to open myself to feel you and i'm going to open myself to say what is it that's important to you, not picking out from what you say, the one thing that I think he's wrong about that. Now I'm going right. to argue and bring all my ammunition against it. No, we're listening with our whole beings with the understanding we're all in community together and we want to stay in
1: community mm-hmm. together. Oh, wow, there's so much here. Well, you're, you're touching on one thing that I did want to talk to you about that seems so tied to this particular moment politically where with Black Lives Matter, even, for example, the tension around Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. That some, when someone says All Lives Matter, that ends up being really seen as uh, almost strongly white supremacist, or just it, it's it's received as um, uh, somehow antithetical to Black Lives Matter. And folks in Black Lives Matter who are who would say this is actually a way to center people that are being most impacted and most marginalized right now. So we have a movement that in this moment is really highlighting the experience of black people here in the US, but also internationally. And then on the other side, when you talk about King and other movements that are looking for a more universal love and belonging, and that we're moving in the direction of uh, of really color blindness. And so to me, there's this, um, it's a, it's a place of tension that I'm both interested in, engaged around, and I'm curious how you think about this, where I, I heard Ruth King, um, the Buddhist teacher, talk about this as ultimate and, and relative reality, that on, on the one side, the ultimate reality might be that there is a oneness, there is a shared uh, humanity between all people who would come into a meditation hall, for example, and then a more relative reality where people are going to be targeted differently around trauma, for example, their experience experiences of adversity and trauma and oppression based on their identity, and how to really hold this tension between these two things. And I could ask you a number of questions about that, uh, and Will, but can you just talk about, is that is that something that, um, How do you think about that balance right now around stressing identity inside of movement and then towards uh, um, maybe a a place where we actually, as Larry was saying, get to actually break together and that there is a shared oneness? How do you think about that tension these days? Just a small question. Yes, (laughs)
0: that's that's a very (laughs) tiny question and I have, a very quick answer, not. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So David, let's, let's if uh, we can step back a moment, did I hear you say that you feel the goal of our society is to move towards colorblindness?
1: Well, that's a good question. I, I'm, in a, I'm in a personal ongoing question about that um, because just to clarify, I do want to live in a world where actually the color of someone's skin or their gender, their sexuality, does not bear on their experience of adversity and trauma. And that is the world I wanna move in, but at this moment to say, well, I wanna live in a a kind of colorblind society feels like it's somehow antithetical to, to the movement here, which is really saying, hey, people are treated differently, especially black people are treated really differently by virtue of their race. So I am I do hold that as somewhere that I want to move but I'm also aware that if it's said without a real context of harm and historical harm that that can sound like it's trying to bypass. So I don't know if that clarifies it but it's something that I'm really thinking about and I'd love, you know, I'd love to hear your take and feel free to, you know, push on me there.
0: Thank you. As I mentioned, I also work as an independent diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Oh, yeah,
1: right. Yeah, right.
0: And within our field, to, to my knowledge, David, I would say that the term colorblind is regarded in a negative sense. Definitely, Because yeah. the way it's usually used, I would say every time I've heard it, the way it's usually used are by, usually by white people who's saying, and we are in the United States. I'm a United Statesian um, because uh, race is a social construct. It's not a biological reality that's been completely proven. It's completely socially constructed. Right. Which if we think about that is quite profound. And so when we think about, it's usually been white people who said, oh, You know, I don't discriminate against anyone on the basis of of race. I'm completely colorblind. Everyone, all human beings, they all look the same to me. I I will never believe that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I don't even think that's possible. I don't even see why it would be advisable. Why would a 45-year-old man who's driving a truck look the same to you as a three-year-old child? I mean, they're just very different in terms of what they're capable of, of how we want to treat them and so forth. Mm-hmm. No, we don't all look the same and we aren't all the same. So another way, so I think that the term colorblind or saying we want to live in a colorblind society, that is usually code, David. For a person who says that it's, it's usually code, meaning let's leave things the way they are. I support mm-hmm. the status quo and I'm a good person so I'm not racist, so don't ask me to be cognizant about white privilege. Don't ask me to alter my own behavior in any way, because I'm not doing anything wrong. Right. It right. is It is a huge bypass. Instead, and I was on a Zoom just yesterday with a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, specialist in Australia named Duncan Smith. And we had a wide-ranging conversation that was so fascinating to me and so enlivening. He does do mindfulness meditation, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how uh, we both feel, and Duncan, if you listen to this and I get it wrong, sorry about that. So I'll speak for <laughs> myself, that I feel that the next evolutionary leap in, for human beings that we're we're right in it right now and this would be a huge evolutionary leap i don't know if we're going to be able to make it or not but that the evolutionary leap that we need to make as human beings now globally connected on planet earth is this that we go from the way that our brains i think uh, most people's brains usually operate as either or us versus them um, in binaries, in dualities, night versus day, Democrats and Republicans, that kind of that kind of thing, to a both and mindset that is able to be receptive to multiple realities, to multiple cultures, and is able to tolerate discomfort, confusion, and not knowing with, in fact, a great deal of comfort, and to say these key words, mm-hmm, please mm-hmm. tell me more.
1: That's great. Mujim, can could you, could you talk about, I love what you're saying about that kind of iterative or more of an integration. Can you talk about how practice or whether practice supports that, what you just said, that kind of third or newer way that hopefully we're moving towards? Do you find practice useful? And if so, how would you, how would you talk about it?
0: What do you mean by practice?
1: could be just say, let's just say sitting practice. So so, so a, uh, a basic mindfulness-based practice where you're spending 15 to 30 minutes in a shamatha, like a, a basically building some concentration, stability of mind, cultivation of mindfulness, dual awareness, being with our experience. You know, if I was to go to the East Bay Meditation Center and, and be consistently in a practice of learning meditation, do you think that that would support me or the group to be moving in that direction that you were talking about with um, your colleague in Australia?
0: That's a really great point, David. And I'd like to take a step back first and yeah, yeah. just introduce to you actually another practice, which is disability-informed language that we've worked with in developing our organizational culture at East Bay Meditation Center. Great. Every Sunday night, we have this wonderful I love it, this wonderful little uh, meditation and discussion group called Everybody Every Mind Sangha. Sangha means spiritual mm. community, and it's for people with disabilities, chronic illness, chronic pain, and limitations of any sort. So even though it's always been a rather small and intimate group, our joke is that because I'm a disabled person, so I'm a teacher for that group and I'm part of that group, our joke is that even though our numbers seem to be very small, we should be the largest spiritual study group and meditation and discussion group in our center. Because if we say limitations of any sort, really, are there people who would say, no, I don't have any limitations. Right. And right. the reason one of the reasons we're small is because there is a stigma on coming out and saying, I'm a disabled person, or I'm a person with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know that, and it's something that we want to work with. So this disability community is very active and vocal, and has said, uh, "Please, we are dedicated practitioners of mindfulness meditation, and many of us have uh, chronic fatigue, chronic illness, chronic pain." spinal injuries, various conditions, and we cannot practice mindfulness meditation in a seated posture. Therefore, uh, we lie down or we're in a semi-reclining position. And so in all of my teaching and in the teaching culture that we're encouraging at East Bay Meditation Center, we switch to, and not all of the teachers use this, we're trying to make it universal. We say stationary meditation oh. so mindfulness meditation in a stationary posture as and opposed that, to seated no as a as opposed to moving meditation so oh, like walking meditation uh-huh. or or movement mindfulness movement when one is in a wheelchair right. or a scooter
1: yeah. oh i see i see
0: um so so if we say stationary mindfulness meditation in a stationary position then it can be any practice of meditation mindfulness meditation in relative stillness, so that can be seated on a chair, it can be seated on the floor on mats and cushions. It could be lying down, mm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I and that's every day. I'm so glad you said that.
0: Right? Isn't that a great term? It's a radically inclusive term, it and is. people so they'll say, "Oh, sitting." You know, did you have a good sit? How's right, your sitting right. group? So we're really trying to move towards practice group or meditation group did you have a good meditation session although i never say that myself i mean what is good really but the fact that you did it for <laughs> so me true. is if you my my rule as a meditation teacher is this if you're not hurting yourself or anyone else or the environment your meditation is superb
1: yeah
0: a plus yeah. cuz people are like did i do it right maybe i'm doing it wrong no no if you did it and you didn't hurt anything great, you are fabulous, you are wonderful, your meditation was superb. Oh, the person says, but I spent the whole time in my mind was just jumping around and I was thinking about shopping at Trader Joe's and I've got these problems. I'll say it happens to me all the time. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. the way it goes. Uh-huh. That doesn't make it a better meditate a worse meditation session than when you're meditating and you feel blissful and serene and in your zone of calm. Yeah, that just means you're in your zone of calm. But so what? I mean, it feels pleasant. However, to me, that's um, that doesn't make it good or bad in 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 any way
1: that's great i love that and i really appreciate you thank you for letting me know about the stationary i had not heard that term but i yeah. really and explaining it
0: and david i'm aware that it it all of these um these new forms of language they initially sound awkward often and they often are awkward however language is always evolving and for language to be access informed disability and access informed and trauma informed the more inclusive we can be because we might think oh everyone knows what we mean by sitting Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. however for people who who cannot sit to meditate it can be enormously they can just feel so happy they can feel so relaxed and included if we say stationary meditation Uh, mindfulness meditation in a stationary posture either seated or lying down some people might wish to stand i don't recommend it but they might wish to stand or need to stand then the people who might normally feel that little twinge of oh sitting that doesn't include me my body is different they don't need to have that twinge
1: yes right the twinges the twinges that's so that's a good word for it
0: Mm-hmm. I, you know,
1: Michelle, I had um, an experience once where someone corrected me. It was so helpful. We were doing uh, a go around around what I had said earlier about the um, access needs check in. And people were saying, Hey, if I, if for this example, I said, someone said, You know, I'm hard of hearing, if you could speak up. And when it came to me, I said something like, I'm good, like, oh, I'm good. As I passed mm-hmm. the next person, and someone came to me later and they said, Well, you know, when you said that, um, how it made me feel was, uh, that if you're, if you're more, if you're able-bodied and you don't have a disability, then you're good. And if you're not, that's bad. And they said, cause you, maybe you could try something like, um, you know, my, my needs are being met right now, as opposed to it's either good or bad. And I was, again, that was one of those moments where I thought, where are those, as you said, twinges, where are those places that it's unintentionally pushing people out or othering, um, inside of a group. And so I always am interested in ways that we can refine our language in a way that makes it more inclusive. You called it radical inclusivity, inclusivity, is that right?
0: We did. Yes, I I did. And that's the term that we're using. I object a little, I get a twinge, David, around the use of the word radical because I feel like the word healing, it's so overused Um, in the discourses I hear However, the reason it's used so often is because they're also very valuable terms. Yes, so right, I try right. to manage and self-regulate around my own twinges. Um, because we you know what we we really want to do is go in the direction of what is the most helpful for the most people with special attention on communities that have been disenfranchised and um, that have not received equitable treatment. So I wanna loop back to, I think that your original question had to do with the application and the usefulness of mindfulness meditation to address social problems. Did I Hmm. hear you correctly?
1: Yeah, it was that tension of, to me it's the tension of radical inclusivity while also really deeply acknowledging uh, identity. And, Or that's my. You can take it wherever you want, but that's my curiosity about what seems like a contradiction, uh, or what can feel like it in a moment. I've I've had the experience that practice is very helpful for getting away from feeling like I need to choose between the two, but actually, like as you talked about, there's this third way. So I'm just really curious about the practicality of this, of practice inside of this moment. Um, However, you want to talk about that, like either in your the Zoom groups that you're leading, or or what you're seeing. Mindfulness practice makes possible. You really take that wherever you want. I'll take it in a Buddhist direction. Great.
0: <laughs> Go for I, it. I am Buddhist. I'm Buddhist. And East Bay Meditation Center is rooted in Buddhist teachings, practices, as well as teachings and practices from some other wisdom traditions, notably some indigenous traditions. Hmm. I would say we are primarily Buddhist based. And Buddhism like any global faith tradition, has many different lineages, many different sects, and they all disagree with one another in various points or differentiate from one another, which is why they are different lineages. And I would say probably um, almost universally worldwide that for Buddhists, our basic teachings, which we do agree on, are what are called the four noble truths or the four truths That help to ennoble us, help to elevate us. I've heard is a better translation. Mm -hmm. Again, clunkier wording, however, more accurate. And of that, and that concerns um, the existence of dissatisfaction and suffering in human life. The Buddhist analysis that that suffering, our suffering in, in terms of our dissatisfaction, is rooted in greed and hatred and delusion. And uh, then the third truth is there is a path out of this horrible, horrible Mm. effects of greed, hatred, and delusion through many centuries and millennia and worldwide. And the fourth truth is that that path is what's called the Eightfold Path. And that's better envisioned as a wheel, a chakra. It's called the Dharma chakra, and it has eight spokes to the wheel, and they're all equally important. So we do have meditation. We do have meditation as a spoke of the wheel, and we also have as another spoke of the wheel what's usually translated as right action, or we could say wise action or beneficial Mm -hmm. action. It's not right in terms of right and wrong. It's, we could say, wise action. And so when we look at that model, and there are then six other spokes to the wheel, um, and such as mindful speech, beneficial speech. And so we can see that this wheel is balanced. And if our development as human beings, spiritually and socially, is to be balanced, maybe we're quite strong in terms of formal meditation. I come myself was trained in the Zen school and we are hardcore meditators. Even at the age of 66 without being regularly in a monastic practice or an intensive practice for years, really, I do yoga, my body would hurt. But if you sat me down for a schedule that included 12 hours of, I'll say sitting because Mm -hmm. it is sitting often, a sitting practice a day, I could knock it off. I might not be that happy, but neither would I suffer that much. I can do that, I can concentrate. And concentration alone, mindfulness alone, when practiced with an individual with themselves will not get us to the world in which we wanna live and the community in which we want to live without uh, beneficial action, Mm -hmm. without, wise speech or right speech or right action we need to have all of and and these eight spokes of the wheel they're not specifically most of them are not specifically buddhist you will they have to do with ethical action and so forth and and interior practices that are going to be found probably in many if not all spiritual paths that are more that are more complete now, Don Haney, the former one of the former co-leaders of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, an organization I've been with for many, many years, has said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that meditation practice by the individual will not, probably, will not help to dismantle racism. Probably, will not help to dismantle homophobia, transphobia any of the isms, any of these these toxic uh, forms of often unconscious uh, thoughts, beliefs, unexamined beliefs that result in toxic actions, including microaggressions, um, will not dismantle it. Because Don said, in order to dismantle these forms of structural violence or oppression, we need to be socially interactive. We need to be interactive and relate with people who identify differently than we do. So it's intrinsically relational Mm -hmm. rather than individual. Mm -hmm.
1: I I can jump in on that. I relate to that. Having been trained um, primarily in, in psychotherapy, and remember hitting a moment inside of my training where I realized that the kind of the implicit assumption of the work was that if everyone in the world could just have access to and do their individual and maybe family work and their healing, that that would transform society. And it wasn't until being around people uh, like my friend Stacey Haynes, uh, Spenta Kondawala, Don is another example of someone I really look to who is talking about actually that there needs to be different strategies to whether it's policy or shifting institutions, that it can't just come from um, being in an individualized practice. We need those people to bump in against. And it makes me think of Larry Yang's work around community and the ways that we'll bump into each other. And ideally, what was it? Break together. As opposed to yes, break, instead apart. Of
0: break apart,
1: you know, I just, it's the, the power of community so that I really um, I, I resonate with that. Do you want to talk at all, Mashim, about uh, maybe this would be a bridge into talking about the the Practice in Transformative Action program that I know you're involved in? And I don't know if that's through the East Bay Meditation Center, but uh, when I first read about that, I thought, oh, wow, this sounds like a, a really powerful program that kind of encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about here in terms of uh, practice, social change. Can you talk about that program at all?
0: I'm happy to talk about it. Practice in Transformative Action is a year-long program of the East Bay Meditation Center. So we're part of EBMC, and we're just finishing up our seventh year-long cohort. Practice in Transformative Action, we usually go by the acronym PITA, which we pronounce PETA like PETA bread. (laughs) <laughs> and so, Peta Seven is getting ready on July nineteenth to do our to gather together for our final meeting. We've been together for a year as a cohort, meeting monthly for a half a day, and with small group meetings in between, one-on-one meetings with myself as the guiding and founding teacher. And we also have two magnificent teaching apprentices who are volunteering. And practice in transformative action eight, one of the things I'm going to be doing after we finish this interview, David, is trying to dive into, because I'm late, getting together the materials for the application process to open up the application process and get things posted for the eighth cohort of Practice in Transformative Action. It will start in September, 2020, and if all goes well in in July of 2021. So it will be a year long program of secular mindfulness training for social justice activists and agents of change, very broadly interpreted. Mm -hmm. Because I am a mother, I have a 31 year old uh, child who, lives with me and being a mother has been once again I was a very hardcore Zen I was a monastic practitioner so if we talk about sitting or stationary practice I can do it yeah I can right. do it I mean like I can do it a silent meditation tr- retreat for three months at a time I can do it yeah I might not like it like it all the time I can do it <laughs> yeah. however as a mother there were times during the terrible twos, the terrible fours where I thought, I don't think I can do this. Yeah. This is too hard. This is too damn hard. And so it's been through being a mother and working with lots of children because I volunteered in the Oakland Unified School District, the Oakland Public School District. I volunteered for 11 years. Wow,
1: wow.
0: Helping with student with um assisting the teachers and also acting as as a as a free literature teacher my degree is in english literature i'm a writer and so i taught i taught literature for the high school students for 4 years as part of a special program at a, at an experimental public high school in in oakland and and all of this experience was essential to the skill set that I bring to practice in transformative action. And over the course of the year, what we do is we start out with a deep dive into mindfulness practice, in stationary practice, either seated or lying down, walking meditation practice. If people are in wheelchairs or scooters, there is a variation of the same basic instructions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we also do body scan, mindfulness meditation as body scan. And by popular demand over the years, we've added on loving kindness meditation, which is not mindfulness meditation, although it's mindfulness informed. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And to that, also over the years, Through experience, we've added on as another foundation practice, mindful speech. Mm -hmm. So those are our foundation practices. We go into them in a deep dive from September through December. I try to help establish a very strong container of safety because in alignment with East Bay Meditation Center's mission, practice in transformative action, we do prioritize accepting self-identified people of color and multiracial folks, members of the alphabet or lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex questioning, asexual, two-spirited community, and people with disabilities, chronic illness, chronic pain. So those are the communities that we give the primary invitation to in order to make, again, this program more accessible to these communities, because it's offered on a gift economics basis, as is everything at EBMC, which means that people of all income levels and those who have no income can participate in an equal manner. We don't have scholarships, because that presents an added barrier of people who need to apply for a scholarship. It's on a gift economics basis, I'm paid nothing, from the program's annual budget and the students in the program, the participants in the program offer donations to me and also financial contributions to East Bay Meditation Center separately. So in that way, we're also trying to model social justice, equity, and inclusion. And then in second part of the year. So that's the first part of the year with practice and transformative action. And then starting around January of every year, we start doing applied mindfulness and do quick trainings in in, um, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy techniques or working with thought distortions. We do mindfulness applied to working with children which is always so much fun. We have guest mm-hmm. teachers. Um, we really take mindfulness and we work it vigorously.
1: It sounds like it. It's a, can you talk about, wow, and I didn't realize it had been seven years now going on eight that you've been doing the program. Can What learning has come out of it? What have you learned about you know particular adaptations for working with organizers? Or I'm just so curious what it's been like. I'm sure there's a number of people who would love to hear what what your takeaways are. Uh, from having done this for so long?
0: The, the takeaways that I've received are, first of all, that, and this was something that I knew previously, going back beyond seven or eight years ago, and I had started working with, and I'm now working very vigorously with it, David, and that is that meditation practice from the Buddhist tradition, I'll speak, from the Buddhist traditions because mindfulness meditation in my understanding is a particular technique it's not all meditation there are so many different kinds of meditation it's a particular technique which comes from the Buddhist tradition it's known as vipassana meditation when it's part of Buddhism and it's been extracted from Buddhism and presented as a secular technique, so it can be taken into schools, into hospitals, government facilities, many places. Mm -hmm. And that mindfulness meditation and other forms of Buddhist meditation, that for some reason, although not exclusively so, that when meditation was brought from uh, Asia into, again, I'll speak for the United States, may be true of North America because I've trained in Canada as well, but definitely in the United States, there has been an incredible prejudice. And I use the word advisedly towards specifically saying sitting meditation. And everything is about sit, 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 sit. As one Buddhist teacher, Asian Buddhist teacher reportedly said, I don't know what it is about you people when you say, I sit for 20 minutes in the morning and I sit for 20 minutes at night and and I have a strong meditation practice. He said, for some reason, what is this magical number of 20 minutes and and why do you think that that's going to help you to progress in your meditation practice? Like it could, but it's not the whole ball of wax. Again, I do have monastic experience. Um, I do have a lot of sitting meditation practice experience and other kinds of meditation practice experience like work, work practice, which is very big in Zen, and mm-hmm. serving, serving the Sangha. And these days, because so, so many people in our society, myself included, spend a lot of time looking at screens and working on screens. So we've we've tended to go towards being a, a very sedentary culture. And it's been said in some medical circles that sitting, and they don't mean meditation, they mean the posture of sitting in one place for long periods of time. They're saying sitting is the new smoking. And so I'm starting to tell people who say, you know, I just don't like to sit. I'm restless. My body hurts. And I feel sluggish all the time. It's like, stop with the sitting. And, and that's like the sacred thing, this desecration. And people are like, no, you can't mean that. I say do. You have to stop. Please stop sitting. I beg you, stop sitting. And instead, mm-hmm. uh, try walking meditation. Try applying mindfulness to swimming. Try applying mindfulness to jogging if you jog. Take up a practice of mindful movement such as yoga, tai chi, qigong. And do that instead of sitting so that you don't end up with health problems related to being sedentary for long periods of of time. And so what I instead really emphasize for the practice in transformative action, folks who are all agents of change, who are all social justice activists, is instead of beating yourselves up that you don't feel you're doing well with specifically, they do say sitting practice or stationary practice, that put more effort, please, intentionally into applying mindfulness into moments throughout everyday life, which will accord with Buddhist monastic practice, by the way, they're not all stuck on sitting. And mindfulness is meant to be extended through every waking moment as much as possible. So mindfulness when we're walking, washing dishes, mindfulness when we're moving, mindfulness when we're driving, mindfulness when we're getting money out of the ATM, Certainly mindfulness when we're talking to our children and our family members, our loved ones, interacting with them. Mindfulness in the broadest sense from being mindfulness of the body and what's happening in our bodies, how we're moving our bodies, to mindfulness of what is happening in our societies, in the world, bringing it all together into a broader landscape that doesn't see inner and outer as separate, into a broader landscape of mindfulness that we're moving within, that that we embody each day in order to be a benefit to ourselves and others. And that is what I truly advocate.
1: Thanks, Mishima. I really appreciate hearing about the work and your learning inside of that work and that you're continuing to do it. And um, I also want to take care of your time here and we've covered a lot a of, lot of different ground. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that um, you'd like to discuss before we before we close up here?
0: I would. I would like to add and thank you for the invitation that the work at hand, this is July in the year 2020, the work mm-hmm. at hand, In my point of view, is the movement to attempt to create a new world, and I don't say new world order because that has very negative terms, a better world that works for all or for more people and more living beings, not just humans, living beings. And to do this, we do need, in my opinion, to dismantle white supremacy. We need to dismantle patriarchy. We need to certainly dismantle the enormous inequity, inequitable distribution of wealth and power that we are seeing now in a way that it, it's, I think it's totally unprecedented in human history to have so few people having the most wealth and power and so many people actually struggling to get basic needs met. We have reached a point that is a breaking point in our society and we are seeing that all uncovered right now in the fact that the COVID-19 virus affects black and brown communities disproportionately to to white communities. Therefore, the work to dismantle this, using mindfulness, using whatever tools we have, uh, political leverage, all of the tools that we have, I hope as nonviolently as possible, is hard. It is very difficult. I would even go on to say it is soul-searing. It is very, very hard. It's painful. It, um, there's, there will be much weeping as people engage in it. And what I would like to end with is to say it doesn't end with that. That the work that we do is not either or. It's neither hugely painful and difficult or pleasurable and non-challenging. It's all of it together. And the rewards that come From from personally and collectively creating more conditions to be more inclusive, to hear more voices, to, to enter into the richness of multiple cultures, multiple realities, and to feel the joy that comes with more inclusion of more of our fellow living beings. There is so much joy, there's so much happiness, there's so much knowledge and enrichment. There's so much spiritual connection and political connection and coalition building that that is what I want to emphasize, that what we are going towards, that what we're working towards in the communities that I am part of, is a world in which there is so much more joy, more happiness, and it is the world that we want our children to grow up in.
1: Thanks for that reminder, Mishim, but um, what's beyond? I hear you looking to a a horizon in many ways, and yes, one thing I'm learning from you here is, there's a, you've, you've been speaking a lot about not getting away from binarisms and away from an either or, and really moving towards a bigger integration. And I just know you've been doing so much hard work over the years towards that inclusivity that you're naming. That's why I wanted to talk to you here. And I just want to appreciate all the hard unseen labor that goes into uh, making that happen and um, teaching mindfulness. So thank you. Um, Thanks for your work and, and thanks for being here. And we'll, we'll link to, um, your website, but anything you'd want to say about ways to get in touch with you, or how to support you or EBMC?
0: Sure, thanks. I have a website. It's www.mushimike.da. M u s s n m, h as an honor. Uh, I am m u s h i m i k e d a and East Bay Meditation Center, you will you can Google it or do a search for it. It's www.eastbaymeditation, one word, .org. And you can get in touch with me either way through my website or through eastbaymeditation.org through Contact Us on the website.
1: Cool. Well, thank you. Good luck with this next um, iteration. I said you were late (laughs) with the papers, but I am. good luck with the next iteration of PETA and uh, all your work. And I um, look forward to seeing you one day again soon.
0: Thank you. I'm intending to be in your trauma-sensitive mindfulness community gatherings that you so generously offer that are open to all online, David. I treasure our connection and I hope that our work together will proceed into the future again into this, the world that we, that we so, so desperately and so also so pleasurably look forward to.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Okay. Be well.
0: Be well also and be safe. Thank you.
1: That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Machine for joining us. If you have any requests about people that you'd like us to speak to or topics that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to reach out at support at davidcharlevin.com. Talk to you soon.